Well, good morning. Uh, this morning when I was getting dressed for work, I could hardly believe uh, it's as warm as it is. Here it is, November 8th, I guess, um, and it's supposed to be 78 degrees today, which is hard to fathom. Uh, like I've mentioned, I grew up in upstate New York, and in upstate New York, and, and it's possible that things have changed since I was a child, but uh, November was like basically the winter. So, I mean, I remember thanks. Thanksgivings when we had like two feet of snow on the ground. Uh, so to imagine wearing a short sleeve shirt when it's going to be 78 today, well into November is almost hard to comprehend, but uh, I'm not going to complain. You know, I don't, I don't mind the warm weather at all. I do kind of miss winter. I like snow and snow sports. You know, we grew up skiing and water, uh, snowmobiling and all of that. And I do miss some of that around here. Here in Indiana, we don't really get any snow to speak of. You know, if we have a couple inches on the ground, that's uh, considerable. Um, but here we are, November 8th. We're going to be looking today at Exodus chapter 14. And Lord willing, we're going to finish the account of Israel crossing the Red Sea today. And just to remind you of a couple of things I mentioned last week, First, as Israel's leaving, you'll remember that Pharaoh has some regret. What have I done? I've just basically bankrupted our economy, let two million slaves go totally free without uh, any uh, consequences whatsoever. And what's more, we, they've taken our gold and silver and whatnot. Uh, so he has some regret and pursues them. Another thing I stressed, I do believe that it's important to see Pharaoh as actually being killed in the uh, crushing of the waters of the Red Sea. Uh, I know that in both uh, the Ten Commandments movie, the Charlton Heston one, and the Prince of Egypt cartoon movie, uh, Pharaoh somehow makes it out alive. Um, I, I don't think that's what we would get from Exodus 14. And I think part of the reason for that is twofold. First, like I said, throughout the entire Exodus, God is crushing the gods of Egypt. The true Lord, you know, Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is coming after the gods of Egypt and slaying them one right after another. Now, if Pharaoh is viewed as a god by his people, it only seems to make sense that he would be killed in this whole confrontation of the gods. Additionally, I do think that this is part of the uh, theme of the seed of the woman crushing the seed of the serpent. Remember that? You go back to Genesis 3.15, and one of the promises that God makes right after the fall is that the seed of the woman, and I take that as to be basically God's believing people culminating in Jesus, will do battle with and ultimately crush the seed of the devil. And the seed of the devil is basically the world, um, those lost in darkness, and that battle goes on throughout the entirety of the Bible and really throughout the entirety of history. Um, and like we talked about last week, on Pharaoh's headdress he had a little animal. And this is kind of interesting because he could have picked a lot of different animals. He could, could have picked a hawk, could have picked a turtle. I mean, he could, could have picked virtually anything. But for whatever reason, right there in the middle of his headdress is a serpent. Now, is it a coincidence that he's got that there? I don't think so. Now, do I think that Pharaoh is knowingly aligning himself with the devil? No, I don't. But that's not really the way that it works. The entire world uh, is under the sway of the God of this age. But they don't know that. They don't really get that they are um, unwitting servants of the devil. So also, even though... Pharaoh probably has no clue that this is going on. He is certainly playing into Satan's hand, and he at this particular time in history is representing the seed of the serpent, even though I don't think he made some sort of you know, backdoor deal with the devil or something like that. Anyway, that sort of sets the stage here. You'll remember Israel feels trapped. Um, they've fled Egypt, but now they're cornered. And you'll remember that God took them this way on purpose. He didn't take them up toward Gaza, uh, the land of the Philistines, but he took them intentionally out into the wilderness. And there they are trapped. The people start complaining. They're saying, Moses, did you bring us out here just to kill us? And Moses is like, uh, just calm yourselves down, stand back, and you'll get to see the salvation of the Lord. Uh, that sort of sets the context for today. Let me pray, and then we're going to jump in here to chapter 14. Pray with me.
God in heaven, we do acknowledge your sovereignty over all things. Lord, it's a difficult doctrine to believe, especially with crazy stuff going on in the world, crazy stuff going on in our families, things often not going the way that we want. So please help us to trust in you. Help us to trust that you do work all things together for good, that you are the God who works all things after the counsel of your own will. Like Psalm 139 says, in your book were written for me every one of my days when as there was none of them. Help us to believe that, Lord, and to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, we do thank you for your plan of how you're exalting Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords, for the way that Jesus is presently building his church, and the gates of, will not, gates of hell will not prevail against that. Again, help us to trust in that. Lord, as we open here, give us much illumination by your Spirit. Lord, we need your Spirit's help. We are prone to darkness, ignorance, foolishness. So please cut through all of that and help us to see the beauty and the glory of your word. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, Exodus 14, we're going to pick up in verse 15, and Lord willing, oh, we'll see here, uh, possibly finish the chapter today, depending on how far we get. Uh, Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Now pause there. A few things to consider. First, this verse implies that Moses was praying for deliverance. Uh, clearly, you know, it, it, the Lord's not going to say this if Moses wasn't praying, Lord, deliver us in some way. Now, was Moses praying for God to open up the Red Sea? I don't think so. I think this is probably just beyond Moses' ability to imagine what the Lord might do. But there are times like that when you don't know exactly what you should pray for, but you pray anyway. Lord, get me out of this situation. Uh, Lord, I have no idea how you're going to do it, but please deliver me. Uh, please provide. Again, I don't know how you're going to do it, but Lord, please provide. There are a lot of occasions like that. Uh, do realize that prayer is one of those beautiful things that God has the ability to kind of go beyond uh, what we're asking. It, it's not like limited by our specificity. Now, I do think that there is benefit in being, a spe- you know, in being realistically specific. Uh, you know, if you're just praying, Lord, bless the missionaries, it's probably beneficial to be more specific. You know, read your missionary prayer letters, find out specific things they need. Do they need a visa to go here or there? Are they hoping for plane tickets to go here or there? You know, it's it's helpful to pray more specifically, but. Never think that God is limited by the specificity of your prayers. Again, there'll be a lot of times when you're like, Lord, please help me. You don't even know what to pray for. Uh, but God can work through that prayer to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And I think something like that's going on here with Moses. Uh, he just sees the giant army of Egypt coming. He sees the people complaining. He, he's, he's like, I don't know how you're going to do it, but Lord, please save us now. And, and as we see, God does a miracle to open the Red Sea. Another thing I want you to think about, uh, notice the way in which basically God says the time for prayer is over, the time for action has come. Uh, He says, why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Now, I want to be very careful in how I word this, but there are occasions where prayer becomes almost uh, an excuse for inaction, if you know what I'm saying. Now, again, I believe in prayer as much as anybody. I love prayer, and I think it's one of the many gifts that Jesus has purchased for us. And I have seen God do absolutely supernatural things through prayer, including in my life. And I, I adore God for that. So don't at all hear me diminishing the power, the significance, the value of prayer. But again, there are times when you need to like uh, act. You know, yes, you're praying, but the time has clearly come for you to like uh, put one foot in front of the other and start moving forward. And if you were to just continue to stay put and pray, it would actually be a form of irresponsibility. 
What do I mean by that? Well, imagine, uh, let's say you've got a child that's sick. Uh, you're praying for this child's healing. You're praying, Lord, please heal this child. Please heal this child. But the sickness isn't getting better. If anything, it's getting worse. Uh, there does come a point where you actually take the, the kid to the doctor, and to refuse to take the kid to the doctor would be irresponsib irresponsible and not good care for your child. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, similar, here, here's another situation I can imagine. I've encountered a lot of people in, um, with their marriage. Their marriage is not going well. They're, they can't get along. They can't solve problems biblically. They're just getting more bitter, more resentful. And they're praying, Lord, please heal our marriage. Please help our marriage. Uh, but things are not getting better. They're only getting worse. Lord, please have mercy in our marriage. There does come a point where you've got to say, okay, it's time, husband, time, wife, for us to go get some marriage counseling. And to not turn to others for help would actually be irresponsible. Uh, so do keep that in mind, that there are occasions like this. Now again, I'm not at all diminishing the uh, importance of prayer, but there are, believe it or not, occasions where uh, if all you do is just stay praying and don't take the necessary action, uh, you're being kind of cowardly or irresponsible or, or who knows why. Um, I do think that with, you know, going back to the marriage counseling thing, the reason why people don't, you know, they only pray and don't seek help is because, again, they're kind of embarrassed and they, they don't want to humble themselves and get the help that they need. Um, and they think if I just keep praying, maybe that will do it. Uh, you know, again, prayer is wonderful and God can do miracles through prayer, but again, there are clearly times when to not get the help that I need in other ways is uh, irresponsible because God, you know, God does certainly work through prayer, uh, but he also gifts the church with pastors, teachers, counselors, and to not avail yourself of those uh, helpers, you know, is in a way kind of kicking against the way in which God has designed the world. So also in the bigger world, God has given us doctors and lawyers and dentists and whatnot, and to just pray, you know, Lord, heal this person without consulting a doctor, it is to kind of kick against the way in which God made the world. Just a couple of things for you to contemplate and to apply to your own life. But anyway, back to verse 15. Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Now again, realize they're heading toward a giant body of water. Now we talked about this uh, Last time, and two, uh, two times ago, I do not think Israel is crossing like the main body of the Red Sea. I think they're crossing a, a significant section of the Red Sea, but for them to make it through in one night, there's no way you could cross like right straight across the middle of the Red Sea. I think what they're going through is sort of a leg of what's called the Gulf of Aqaba, which in those days would have been called the Red Sea. Uh, so what we're reading about here is an absolute miracle, a bona fide miracle, um, but at the same time, it's, it's kind of, again, just to give you my primitive illustration here. Imagine Egypt's here. Imagine this is Sinai. The Red Sea is like right here. Today's called the Red Sea. Up here there's a branch uh, of the Red Sea called the Gulf of Aqaba, and I think they crossed like a day's journey worth up here, which again was a miracle because the waters parted, but if they crossed down here it would have taken an awful long time, especially for two million people to make it across. But anyway, head toward the water. Verse 16, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. That the, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. The only thing I'll mention there, the fact that it's dry ground actually becomes very significant here. Uh, we might read right over that and not even notice it. But the dry ground thing is important for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, water that's been submerged under millions of gallons, you know, ground that's been submerged under millions of gallons of water for, uh, you know, thousands of years uh, does not turn into dry ground overnight. You know, let's say we drained, uh, you know, the, the White River or something like that. The soil there would be all soggy and moist and swampy for an awful long time. If there's not a genuine miracle taking place here, um, then, you know, this is impossible. And additionally, as we're going to read about later, 
God miraculously turns this water soggy again so that the Egyptian chariot wheels get stuck in it. Uh, So see here God's absolute sovereignty over nature, over uh, ecology, over the control of water and sand. And I mean, it's it's really quite remarkable. Uh, Never think that God is limited by so-called natural law. We have we have you know what we call natural laws that you know if water reaches a certain point it boils and you know water evaporates. All, All of that is good to learn in your science class and whatnot. But never think that God is limited by any of that. God can manipulate nature and molecules and water and sand any way he pleases. And we see the same sort of thing going on with Jesus' miracles. I mean, Jesus turns water into wine. Uh, he walks on water. He calms storms. There's all sorts of things that so-called, you know, contradict natural law, but uh, obviously God's not bound by so-called natural law. He does whatever he pleases. It is interesting, by the way, how many of Jesus' miracles have to do with water. I was thinking about this just kind of in my own personal devotions. I mean, turning water into wine, walking on water, calming storms. I mean, you, you could keep going, using water and other, you know, it, it's really kind Kind of interesting, and I don't really get totally the significance of it, um, but coming back here to Exodus, clearly water is central here. The other reason why it's significant that the uh, the dry land appears goes back to Genesis 1, because what, are, what is one of the things that God does in the creation account? Uh, he separates the water from the dry land, and you know, dry land appears and all of that, and then the dry land you know, uh, starts bearing plants and trees and whatnot. Uh, Similar terminology used here, and there are all, all these sorts of connections going on throughout the entire Pentateuch of uh, similar phraseology, similar words used, uh, and the, basically the big point is that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is also the God of creation. Uh, the God who made the promises to Abraham to bless all the nations and so forth is also the God of all creation. And there, there is a great temptation to separate the two and to think that, okay, there's the God of creation, he's awesome, and then there's like a different God, the God of the Bible. No, the, the the entire emphasis of the Bible is no, that the same God who caused the sun to rise this morning is the same God who's speaking to us in Scripture. Uh, the same God that's uh, put the planets in their courses and you know keeps the whole solar system moving and whatnot, uh, he's the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's very important to keep those two tightly tied together because otherwise what you'll do, you'll put the Bible sort of on the shelf and think that that was true for old-fashioned bible times people that lived 2,000 years ago. Uh, but now we've got a, almost like basically a different God today, the God that causes the sun to rise and the, the moon to shine and so forth. But no, the Bible is always emphasizing they're one and the same God. And the more you can remind yourself of that, the better. You know, actually, whenever I see the moon, I remind myself, you know, that's the same moon uh, that God made back in Genesis 1 that Abraham looked up at when you know he was out uh, in the fields, that Jesus looked up at, same moon. And the more I can connect in my mind the events of the Bible to the events of like this creation that I'm experiencing, the better it is for our faith. But anyway, so the the dry land appears, verse 17, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his chariots, pardon me, and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. Similar themes we've talked about again, uh, the Lord hardening not only Pharaoh, but also his servants uh, so that they're doing his will. I know that again, we don't like these ideas, but Again, you know, I don't want to be too blunt here, but let's let God tell us what he is like as opposed to imposing upon the Bible what we want God to be like. Uh, let's not imagine that God can't harden people's hearts because clearly you know, he talks about doing it all over the place here in the book of Exodus. And in order that they would pursue them into the waters, he hardens their heart so that he gets greater glory. Um, there are things that God does that make us a little bit uncomfortable, but he only does them to glorify himself. You know, did he 
allow Judas to betray Jesus? Of course. But he did that so that Jesus would die on the cross for our sins to be the Savior of the world, etc. Um, you know, realize God is working from this like 10,000 foot view. We tend to look at life with the like little tiny, you know, how's this going to affect my lunch this afternoon? God's looking in terms of thousands of years and this great giant plan that he's put together from before the creation of the world, all for his glory, uh, through the death and resurrection of his son to redeem people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And when you look at the entire plan of human history that way, you, you might make different choices. And I do think that really at the end of the day, if we knew everything that God knows and were as loving and as good as God is, we'd agree with the choices that he makes. Uh, but because we're limited in our understanding, limited in our ability to see the, the entire picture, that's why we kind of chafe against it. Lord, why did you do this? Or why did you let this happen? Um, but again, let's trust God that if we knew what he knows, and if we were as good and loving as he is, we'd do the very same thing. Anyway, let's pick back up. Verse 18, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Again, we've talked about this a lot, but God's desire is not only that the Jews would believe that Jehovah is God, but also that the Egyptians would believe that Jehovah is God. And I think there are instances of this where God is saving, even in the Exodus, uh, not only Hebrews, but people from other ethnic groups, uh, indicating that really the idea of missions is not an entirely new idea. Of course, after the resurrection, there's this concerted emphasis, go into all the world and make disciples, but uh, that heart, that desire to see people say from every nation under heaven, that's really found throughout the, the Bible, and God just went about accomplishing it different ways. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gained glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Verse 19, then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. Now this is really interesting because evidently they're being led not only by the pillar of cloud, the Shekinah glory, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the angel of God, which is probably the angel of the Lord, uh, which for the sake of time I won't pursue it, but I do think that there is good reason to suspect that this is probably the pre-incarnate Jesus. And if you look at the very beginning of Jude, it talks about Jesus leading the people. Why, why don't we look there just for the sake of time? Flip over quickly to the book of Jude. I find this rather fascinating, and, and this verse in Jude actually helps me in interpreting the book of Exodus. If you go over to Jude, Jude's only got one chapter, but at the very beginning of Jude, let's see if I can find it real quick. Um, Jude, where is it? First Peter, Second Peter, Jude. Um, it says, verse 5, I want to remind you, although you once knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who don't believe. I find that verse so interesting because, you know, technically Jesus isn't mentioned once in the book of Exodus. You know, you don't see his name there. So how then is he saving the people out of the land of Egypt and destroying those who don't believe? I think we've got to, in a way, find him. It's, it's not the perfect terminology, but discover him in places where the term Jesus doesn't appear. You can go back to Exodus, by the way. So I do think that this angel of God who's leading Israel through the wilderness, uh, I think I made the case a couple of, several weeks ago that the angel of death was probably Jesus as well. If you read, say, 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul makes some really interesting connections between uh, that rock that led them in the wilderness and that rock was Christ. I mean, the, the New Testament authors seem to find Jesus rather freely in the Old Testament, more than uh, we tend to. So I do think that this is probably Jesus leading them in the wilderness, uh, though they wouldn't have called him that. But anyway, both the pillar and the angel of God move behind them and, and they create this kind of barrier. And what this is going to do, it's going to give Israel the time they need to get across the Red Sea. Now again, they're being pursued by an army, and this army is 
you know, a lot of them are on chariots, and those who aren't on chariots, probably, you know, decent athletes, so they're moving pretty quick. The people of Israel, two million strong, you know, that includes, yes, young men, but it also includes women, children, uh, invalids. So the pace that they're moving is not going to be anywhere near as quick as the army. So they need a wall to give Israel the time to get across the Red Sea. You follow me? Uh, verse 20, coming between the host of, Israel, host of Egypt, host basically is, is just sort of like a Bible term for great army. Uh, when you read about the Lord being the Lord of hosts, that's talking about the Lord of angel armies. Angels evidently are organized into armies, which is kind of interesting to think about. But the commander-in-chief of all the angel armies is the Lord. The host of Egypt, the army of Egypt, is obviously led by Pharaoh. Coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So evidently time's passing, the, the, you know, the army, let's, let's imagine this, the army of Egypt, led by Pharaoh here, there's the cloud and the angel of God, there's Israel over here heading toward the water, and you know, evidently a number of hours pass so that the sun starts going down. And again, when you're dealing with a people group as big as 2 million people, it kind of makes sense that it would take some time to uh, convey that many people a, a good distance. You know, I got five kids, um, and sometimes it takes me an awful long time to get them from our house to the church, even though it takes me like, you know, five minutes to get there. You know, you got to get them all dressed, and you got to pull them out of bed, and you got to, you know, get them their drink and their teeth brushed and everything. Uh, imagine, you know, that's my family of seven. Uh, imagine, I, you know, I'm, I'm leading a group of 2 million people. It's going to take a little bit of time to get them from one point to another. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. So again, they're heading toward the sea. And a lot of the people are probably like, what in the world is going on here? Uh, you know, are we going to just all drown? Are we going to walk in and, you know, walk under the water? And, and so they don't really know what's going on. But Moses at the right time raises his hands and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. A couple of quick things here. Like I said, the waters become, you know, separate um, and Dry land appears, again, an allusion to Genesis 1. Um, but you'll notice the role of the wind. Now, be careful there, because some Bible skeptics have said that this really wasn't a miracle. It was just the wind kind of blowing the water back. You know, you ever been at the beach when there's like a big wind going on? And sometimes the water, you know, sometimes the wind can blow the water away from the shore, uh, you know, a couple of feet. Um, and, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing to see. Uh, sometimes there are actually clams that, you know, appear because the clams are embedded in the, in the sand and the water blows the wind back. And skeptics will say that that's all this was. God did not do a true miracle here. He just, you know, a wind happened to strike up and blew people back. Uh, you know, there are so many problems with that idea that it's ridiculous. I mean, first, where we're talking about, we're not talking about like some little creek or something like that. You know, we, we are talking about a giant body of water. True, it's not the the the... Dead Sea proper, like we talk about today, but we're still talking about something that's, uh, you know, miles across, extraordinarily deep, millions of gallons of water. You know, the wind doesn't part something like that. So yes, God used the wind, but maybe He used the wind just like a hair dryer to dry the ground. But otherwise, there's like a water on one side and on the other. Now, in the Prince of Egypt movie, which you know you can you can probably tell I got little kids, so you know I keep making references to it. Um, in the Prince of Egypt movie, it's interesting that there are these two walls, and they see fish actually uh, swimming and around, swimming around in the walls of water. Now, if that's what it was like, we don't really know. You know, so we kind of almost have to imagine. Uh, you know, was it? Uh, continually rolling waves back. You know, that's how the Ten Commandments Charlton Heston movie is. Uh, so, you, you know, 
maybe we got to wait till we get to heaven to figure out all the dynamics here. Was it like a clear face of glass that they walked through? Or was it more like you know two waterfalls going the opposite direction? Uh, again, maybe wait to heaven uh, to get to heaven before you get too dogmatic. But the point is, God splits it open far enough for two million people to walk through. The otherwise soggy, sandy soil is like pavement, and they're able to march through all night long. Verse 22, And the people of Israel went into the midst of of the sea and dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in, in, in after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now pause there. There must be several hours between verse 22 and 23. Enough time for the Israelites to get across the Gulf, you know, get across and get to the other side. But at some point, that cloud and the angel of God, evidently they, they move out of the way, giving them the ability to charge in after them. And who knows what the Egyptians were thinking. You know, they probably saw the Israelites cross and they're like, ah, here, here we go, let's give it a try. Uh, but I remind you that the reason why they're doing this is because Pharaoh hardened their heart so that they would pursue. Uh, maybe part of that hardening was sort of turning off their rational faculties so that they uh, did something that otherwise they, they probably wouldn't do because it was so dangerous. But they charge in. And again, I would contend that Pharaoh is among them. In the movies, he's often you know kind of back here watching. I think that sort of uh, does violence to the whole theme of God getting glory over Pharaoh. So I, I imagine Pharaoh is actually in the water with him, or in you know what would have been the water, in the dry land with him. 24, and in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire, uh, pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. So apparently, halfway through the Red Sea, uh, things start going a little bit awry. Uh, their wheels start getting stuck into the soil, which indicates that God miraculously changed like the makeup of the soil, going from hard pavement type stuff to all of a sudden soggy, swampy stuff in like a nanosecond. Additionally, there's some sort of panic that falls upon them. And this is something that we see, I'm going to wrap this up here in a minute, uh, but this is something that we do see in the Bible, that God has the ability to cause people to just become like overcome with fear, like out of the blue. Uh, you'll remember that this happens in the book of Joshua. God causes the nations around them to just be overcome with fear. If I remember correctly, this happens in Abraham's ministry uh, life, that God, the fear of God just sort of falls on people. God has this ability over the human heart to all of a sudden you know, cause people that would otherwise be fine to have sort of like panic attacks, uh, but he does it to wake them up and to get their attention, and that's what takes place here. They're cruising in, and again, imagine it a little bit. They're cruising into the dry land. They just saw two million Israelites cross in front of them. They're like, all right, this is going well. We're going to catch them. And then all of a sudden, the chariot wheels get stuck, and they're like, uh-oh, this isn't going well. And then all of a sudden, they're having these panic attacks. And what's the conclusion? The Lord fights for them against Israel. Uh, they figure out kind of the, this is like the big theme of the book of Exodus, that the Lord, he is God. Uh, the gods of Egypt, dead, worthless idols that do nothing. Despite all of Israel, or all of Egypt's wealth and power and prosperity and impressive architecture, you know, even today the Sphinx is still around, which is, you know, thousands and thousands of years old. Uh, despite all of that, their gods are dead idols and the Lord, he is God. And you see that even in this event. For the sake of time, I'm going to wrap it up there. You know, I don't want to... It's kind of a difficult place to conclude because we've only got, what, uh, five verses left, and I think you all know what happens. 
But how might we pray this passage back to God? A few things that quickly come to my mind. Praise God for his ability to answer our prayers beyond what we ask or think. Uh, yet become people of prayer and pray again with specificity that's beneficial, uh, but never think that we're limited by our specificity. God can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Let's praise God for his control of the so-called natural world. And really, at the end of the day, there isn't really a natural world. There's God's world, and God usually does things in a consistent way, you know, causing water to boil at 212 and whatnot, but never, ever, ever think that God is limited by what we call natural law. God can do whatever he pleases, even parting the Red Sea. Let's thank God for his evangelistic heart, that he desired the Egyptians to know that he was the Lord. And let's pray for a similar evangelistic heart, uh, that we might desire people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation to come to know, know the Lord in a saving way. Let me pray for these things and we'll be done. Oh God, we stand in awe of who you are. You are a great and awesome God. You are the one and only God, the true God. Uh, Lord, the gods of this world are dead idols, but you are the God that made the heavens and the earth earth, the sea, all that is in them. You're the God that split the Red Sea and rescued the people of Israel. You're the God that can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And we thank you, Lord, for the way that you do use our prayers to that end. Please make all of us people fully devoted to prayer, people that love to pray and that ask and seek and knock. And yet also, Lord, make us people who act, who when it becomes obvious that we need to put one foot in front of the other, um, get up and get the help that we need or seek the counsel that we need. Um, please, Lord, help us to not excuse our laziness and inaction uh, by our prayers. We do praise you today for your control of the natural world and for the way that you're the one that causes the rain to fall, the sun to shine. You're keeping the planets in their courses, and we give you glory for the way that you are a God who works wonders, who does miracles, who's not limited by so-called natural laws. And Father, we do thank you for your evangelistic heart, the desire that you do have to see people saved uh, of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And please give that to us, that we would long, that we would be burdened for the salvation of unbelievers, uh, both here in our sphere of influence, but really around the world, the desire to see everybody know the Lord. Bless now the remainder of our day. Help us to love those we interact with and gather us back here on Thursday again to study your word with your people. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great day.